Holy shit, it's that time again. I cannot even believe it. It's time for episode nine of Nick the American. Can you believe we've already made it nine episodes? You know, my mother, she listened to the first episode and she told me she didn't think it would make it past three episodes. So here we are at nine. The heck with you, mom. Look what your boy's doing. It's unbelievable. Well, what else is your boy doing? So, talked about kidney stones. We've talked about kidney stones, and we've talked about kidney stones. I have surgery set for June 22nd. All right. I've got football practice. I've got spring practice. The two and a half weeks before, fit my surgery in. Then I'm off to Memphis so I can move my company down the street because my lease is up, and we just signed a new lease. So, June 22nd, I have my surgery. I get my stint put in. Right now, I, I created an OnlyFans page. And, you know, the more money you give, the higher likelihood you are to be chosen to pull my string when the time comes for me to remove my stint. Right now, a dude from Carl, a dude named Carl from Missouri is leading in the money chase, right? So right now, Carl gets to pull it out. So I need some of my, you know, female listeners. Again, I, you know, all of you female listeners, I need you guys to donate because I don't want Carl pulling this son of a bitch out. <sighs> I'm kidding. Carl's not going to do it. My wife's not going to do it. I'm going to do it, damn it. It's going to be exciting, and I'll let you know. Like I said, maybe I'll even do it live on air. But let's move past the kidney stone. Last week, I was talking up LeBron James and the Los Angeles Lakers. I, I said, go Lakers. I don't think I'd ever said, go Lakers in my entire life. Well, that was short-lived. They got swept by the Nuggets. And so if you probably turn on ESPN and listen to Stephen A. Smith, you could listen to 30 minutes of bickering how LeBron choked, how Michael never got swept, right? LeBron is just as great today as he was yesterday. He's just as great yesterday as he is as he's going to be next week. The guy has lived up to all the billing. I know everyone's going to shit on him for this, but they really shouldn't. They really shouldn't. Saw um, LeBron's postgame remarks. Kind of sounds like he's uh, thinking about retiring. And if LeBron's going to retire... Isn't it kind of kind of go this way? I mean, at the end of the season, you know, you're exhausted. You know, you've got a lot to reflect on. It's not the right time to have a microphone in, in front of your face talking about retirement. I mean, I'm a boxing guy. Ask a boxer right after a, a hardcore fight. They all they're they're ready to retire. They don't want to do that again. But we have Brawny James attending the University of Southern California. Okay. If Brawny goes out. And he's one of the best basketball players in the country his first year. LeBron's going to be motivated, right? He's coming back. If Bronny James in his first year at USC is just another basketball player, maybe that speeds up that, that thought process in, in the King's mind and he retires. So no pressure, Bronny. The fate of your father's career or the final stage, the final chapter rests on your ability to play at USC. So let's see how it goes. All right. No more LeBron talk. Oh, and by the way, congratulations to the Denver Nuggets. 
they made the finals for the first time in 40 years. Yikes. That, that I mean, that's awesome. How special is that? That's a lot of damn heartbreak. Now, what, the Colorado Avalanche won the Stanley Cup year uh, last year? So Denver Sports is doing pretty good outside of, of the real treasure in the state of Colorado, the Denver Broncos. Please, please, Sean Payton. Please. I want to win again. I want to win again. And I don't even know what that feels like anymore. Haven't made the playoffs since we won the Super Bowl in 2015. Super Bowl 50. Oh, goodness. Okay, moving on. Moving on. So I've talked boxing a little bit on a couple of episodes. And I've gotten I've gotten a bunch of feedback from, you know, listeners and friends and, and stuff like that. And one of the things that keeps coming up is... Nick, how come you don't talk UFC? How come you don't talk Ultimate Fighting Championships? And it's not that I, I dislike the UFC or I hate the UFC or I don't think that it's awesome in terms of a combat sport. I mean, it's pretty badass. It's scary. But I'm just not a UFC fan. I started watching boxing when I was seven years old with my dad and my uncle. Okay. Learned to score fights, all that sort of stuff. It just kind of captivated me. I started having friends over, God, 11, 12 you know, years old for pay-per-view events. And so lots of fun. Got into boxing. I've got a, a, a long history and a frame of reference of, in the sport of boxing. UFC came out. I, I bought UFC 1. I bought UFC 2. Hoist Gracie, Dan Severn, Fr Dan Severn, Frank Shamrock. Remember those guys? I was in. I was trying to watch it. You'd have Hoist with his gi, and they'd try to grab his gi, and um, they actually had to change rules because they would – all my friends, we would all be huddled up, ready to watch the beginning of the fight, ready for some action, and then Hoist would go down to the ground, and then five minutes – 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And pretty soon everyone at my pizza party when I'm 13 years old could give a shit, right? So I just don't, I gave up on UFC and boxing was my passion. I don't quite understand the game. I'm not a wrestler. Um, I don't know Muay Thai or jujitsu. All I know is, is punching people in the face, hitting and not getting hit. The sweet science. That's all I know. That's not to say UFC isn't awesome. It, the one of the, one of the things that, that was, it was that kind of took place. I don't know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I don't know how long has UFC been around. I don't even know. You know, it's been around a long time. But in terms of getting really popular, when Dana White took it over, became like you know UFC's sole promoter. It's 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 a sport that is a cousin or a brother to boxing. Boxing should not be fighting UFC. UFC should not be fighting. Boxing, it's kind of like politics, bros fighting bros, Republicans and Democrats. Combat sports like boxing and, and MMA have so much in common. 
to try to say which one's better, which one's worse. It's it's just what you like. And and I don't cover UFC because I don't know it. I don't know the sport. I don't know the fighters. I mean, I know John Jones. I know Uriah Faber. I, I mean, I know, um, you know, Conor McGregor. I know Aldo. But I don't know the up-and-comers. I don't know what the best matchups are. When they do fight, I don't know who's going to win or I have an idea of how the fight's going to play out. I know all of those things in the sport of boxing. So I remember, this was like 15 years ago, um, Joe Rogan. This was before his podcast. This was before his super popular podcast. Joe Rogan was on a show and Lou DiBella, who was a former HBO boxing executive and DeBella Entertainment. He's a boxing promoter. They were on, and this is when UFC was really picking up some steam. Oh, it's more popular than boxing. Boxing's dying. And they were, I, I don't know if Joe was arguing. He wasn't. Boxing people got real defensive there for a little bit, like, Oh, this is our sport. It's been around for 100 years. Your sport just started up a half hour ago. What the hell do you know, right? And when you watched this this interview, and I forget who did it, this back and forth with Joe Rogan and Lou DiBella, Lou DiBella was like the worst spokesman for the sport of boxing you could ever be. He was just trying to rag on UFC, why it sucked, why it was no good. And it's like, how could you say that? It is an ultimate combat sport. It is, I mean, it's mono mono. Max Kellerman, the imposition of will, right? UFC is awesome in that way. And then you had Joe Rogan sitting back saying, hey, I, lo- I love boxing. I love big boxing fights. He was the exact opposite of Luda Bella. And it just gave us, you know, boxing fans a bad taste in our mouth. So... I remember that interview. I remember Joe Rogan long before his podcast. Joe Rogan is now the, you know, the in terms of announcing, he he is the he's the voice of UFC. Boxing, we've got a bunch of them. It used to be Jim Lampley. Jim Lampley, where are you? Superman, come back to boxing, please, Jim. I love that son of a bitch. Jim Lampley. But Joe Rogan is the voice of UFC. He does an incredible job. He portrayed himself really good versus Lou DiBella and said kind of, hey, look, I like boxing. I like UFC more. It's whatever floats your boat as opposed to Lou DiBella just trying to bash on UFC. So I'm going to talk boxing on this show. I wish I could talk boxing more. I'm not going to talk a bunch about UFC. Maybe if John Jones is fighting... I don't know. Here, I'll give you a UFC take. Conor McGregor is a total fucking fraud. A total fucking fraud. He was a real fighter, won some won some some consecutive fights. I don't know how many he won in a row before he was the greatest UFC striker of all time. And and that's what happens when you don't have a long history. But UFC's constantly searching for a star. They found one in Conor McGregor, this mean Badass, you know, dude from Ireland. And he got paid and basically stopped being a full-time fighter. I think he wants to fight Nate Diaz for like the sixth time and make, you know, $20 million. One of the problems with UFC is they don't make the money that the big-time boxers do. 
And one of the reasons for that is because Dana White, he, you know, he's the sole promoter. He tells you, hey, we're, you know, it, and it's really good in, in, with regards to UFC. One, they don't get paid. That's bad. But the best fight, the best, or so it seems from my perspective. Or so it seems. <clears throat> in boxing, they get paid a shit ton, but the best don't fight the best. They all jockey around and try to keep their own. So I will talk boxing. I will talk UFC. I just, boy, I gave you my Conor McGregor breakdown. He wasn't a real fighter for very long. Anybody who pays to see Conor McGregor anymore after the Floyd Mayweather fight, you're fucking nuts. This guy, you know, he's got his his alcohol. He's on commercials. You know, he's, you know, smacking somebody in, in public. This guy's no longer a real fighter, and he hasn't been for several, several years since the Mayweather fight, right? He got he got a big paycheck, a paycheck that's not normal in UFC. You got to cross over to boxing to get that big paycheck, but he got it, and he's never been the same since. So I love boxing. It's something I grew up on. I tried UFC. John Jones probably could have gotten me more involved. I think he was a transitional, you know, trans, you know, he was an incredible talent, maybe the best we've ever seen in the UFC. So I'll try to cover it every once in a while, but there, there you go. I'm going to talk boxing because I know boxing. I know boxing. Congratulations to Devin Haney and Vasil Lomachenko, by the way, for this past weekend's fight. It was a great fight. Undisputed at lightweight. People were talking about it being a robbery. It was not a robbery. The fight could have gone 115, 113 either way. Vasil Lomachenko is still a master. He's got three losses, and in all three losses, Vasil Lomachenko was the better fighter the last four rounds of, of all three fights he's lost. So props to Vasil. I, I, I was hoping you would get the nod 115, 113. At the very least, a draw. A few chinks in Devin Haney's armor. For you Gervonta Davis fans, that had to be uh, uh, fun to watch because Devin Haney, Gervonta Davis, Shakur Stevenson, we're talking about potentially three Hall of Famers all in the lightweight division. So, all right. I didn't even mean to talk boxing, and there I go. I could just talk about it forever. Let's move to something a little bit more serious. All right. We're going to talk about African-Americans, in specifically Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, and reparations. Okay, so you see Black Lives Matter signs in people's yards. You see it on shirts. People, it's 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 you know, it's prevalent now. Black Lives Matter. You know why we need to say Black Lives Matter? You know why? Because almost for the entire history of our country, just about. Black lives have never mattered. So it's important, especially for white people, to say black lives matter. Now, I know people want to say white lives matter or all lives matter or blue lives matter. Well, no shit. Cops' lives have always mattered in this country. Always. Okay? White people, their lives have always mattered. Mattered above black people. Okay? Now, I don't know when black lives started to matter. And I'm not saying it happened yesterday. Did it? It started in 1865 when slavery ended. 
it continued in 1965 when we figured 1964 in the Civil Rights Act where we said, ah, it's okay for a black person to take a piss in in a in a in a you know a white person's toilet. That's okay, right? It continued 19, you know, 1966 when the first black athletes were allowed to play in the Southeastern Conference for football. It's been slowly happening. And and I think we're probably at a, at a place now where it, for black people, you know, the country's as good as it's ever been for them. But the reason why it's important to say black lives matter is because they never have. Do you think they mattered in 1865? If black lives matter, how come black people weren't allowed to play in the Southeastern Conference in football? Black lives have only mattered for a little bit. White people, it's okay to say it. On Nick the American, Black Lives Matter. It's as simple as that. Now, all lives matter, but specifically black ones, because for a long time in this country, they did not matter. Now, critical race theory. Man, talk about a controversial topic. They're banning black education um, curriculum in Florida and different parts of the country. I have friends you say critical race theory, and it looks like they stepped in dog shit. Now, mind you, I have not met many white people who are against critical race theory who can explain critical race theory. So let me just read the definition here for you real quick. Critical race theory, a set of ideas holding that racial bias is inherent in many parts of Western society, especially in its legal and social institutions on the basis of their having been primarily designed for and implemented by white people. So in other words, white people set up our social, our legal, our financial systems and structures. Okay. Now, if a black person was three fifths of a person, if a black athlete can't play sports, until the 1960s. Do we really think that white people set up social and, and, and a social system, a legal system, a financial system that was fair? That's basically what it is. And if you disagree with critical race theory, please come on my podcast. It doesn't matter who you are, right? If How do you disagree that the economy was not open to black people. Hey, 1865, slavery ends, right? Economy should be open. Social systems, right? They've all been set up. They're rigged against the black person. It's okay to talk about it. It's okay to learn about it. I think we can drop the theory and critical race theory altogether. How about we just call it black history? What they had to go through the hundred years post-slavery. Nobody should be offended by your kid learning about black reconstruction. Okay. It's it's actually unbelievable. I, you know, I think to my back to my childhood in grade school, we had some Martin Luther King talk, but I knew nothing about black reconstruction. Hey, slavery ended in 1865, right? Civil rights. We could sit anywhere on the bus we wanted. Um, you could pee in the same toilet. So 
I just get a little fired up when I hear white people talking about critical race theory and they really can't even explain it. I'm not apologizing for being white. No one's asking you to apologize. We just need to recognize. We need to understand. We need to learn. So many people hear critical race theory and boop, they're shut off. They don't want to hear about it. How do you argue that white people rigged the system, the overall system against black people? Now, like I said, with Black Lives Matter, things are improving. Things are better in this country than they have ever been. Police are improving, right? Opportunities for black people are improving. We're not there yet. We will never be there in some ways because of the wrongs that were committed, you know, when we talk about slavery. We'll never get there. But it's okay to talk about it. We should we should never be afraid to bro- breach the subject about Black Lives Matter, about critical race, about social and economic institutions that were set up in this country for white people, not black people. And those are changing. But it takes when, – when you bring slaves over here in the 1600s and for 250 years they're owned – And then for a hundred years, they're literally post-slavery allowed to do nothing. It takes a long damn time. Okay. I, I don't know how you want to hide this from children or middle schoolers or high schoolers. We should be learning. I don't want to, I, I don't want, I don't want to learn when I'm in the fourth grade that in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. It was just machine gunned into my head. Why were we, why were white people in the United States of America telling a lie about this Chris Columbus dude? Wasn't the first person to discover the Americas. Wasn't even close. Wasn't a great dude either. We had a day off, a, 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 a school day off for this guy, right? Why were we lied to? Did it make us feel good? If Christopher Columbus would have been black, would we have still been promoting him as the, as, as the founder of the Americas? We learned way too much about that shit when I was little. Teach black reconstruction. All right. Now, so I've talked about black lives matter. I'm pro black lives matter. I've talked about critical race theory. Teach it. It's fine. What are you afraid of? Our past? Now, reparations. This liberal Democrat is not for paying anybody and writing out checks to a bunch of black people who generationally were wronged. Where do we stop? We, I, we've got Native Americans. We've got Jewish people. Uh, we hate on Mexicans now coming over the border. Where, where, where do we stop? We, you know, in this country, we don't hand out checks. Well, maybe to super rich people. No, I don't know. I don't know. We don't hand somebody a million-dollar check and say, hey, sorry, hey, sorry, I am not for reparations. Now, I'm willing to listen. I'm always willing to listen. If someone's got a great idea and they 
tag the term reparations, the word reparations to that idea. I'm still willing to listen. I know a lot of people, hell no, no way. I am willing to listen. There's a, there's a story in Southern California. It's called Bruce Beach. This was um, a couple named Charles and Willa Bruce. There, you know, and now think about this. There were no places for black people to go. You couldn't fill up gas. And we're talking Bruce Beach was purchased by Charles and Willa Bruce in like 1910, 1912, something like that. There were no places for black people to go. You couldn't be out after sundown. Okay. And so Charles and Willa Bruce buy a couple plots of land and build a black resort where black people can go hang out on the beach and stay. And this is the, the you know, the only place they've got. Well, of course, when black people succeed, especially in 1910, what do you think white people do? Do you think they're happy for them? Or do you think they destroyed their resort? That's what they did. Okay. The city comes in ultimately and claims eminent domain on Charles and Willa Bruce's property. They take it away from them. They stole it from them. Okay. They said they were going to turn it into a park. They declared eminent domain and it never really became a park. And this was two years ago or a year ago. Bruce Beach, this, this property that's worth millions and millions of dollars was returned to the heirs of Charles and Willa Bruce. Now, that's not reparations, right? That's just giving somebody back what was rightfully theirs. And I'm wondering if this Bruce Beach story is an outlier or are there more stories like this out there? Because if there are, I would love to return anything that was stolen to African-Americans throughout our, you know, negative history. I'll just say that. I'm not for handing black people checks, but Bruce Beach has been returned to its rightful owners, right? In 1867, there was actually legislation in the House of Representatives, reparations legislation, they were going to give black males 40 acres and a mule as back pay for time served, right? Think about how different our country would have been had we have, in 1867, told the the male slave, you know, the male slaves who were the uh, head of a house, here you go. Here's 40 acres and a mule to begin your journey, to begin your American dream. Here's 40 acres and a mule to begin your generational wealth. How different would our country be? How different would the history of African-Americans be? Probably be pretty doggone different. And in 1867, ask yourself this question. If you were a congressman in 1867, put yourself back, back in time, would you be for giving them 40 acres and a mule. Would you be for reparations? I think, why not, right? That'd be great. 
when we fast forward to 2023 and I see California wants to write people out $5 million checks, are you fucking kidding me? It just doesn't work like that. If we can write historic wrongs like Bruce Beach, if we can teach our kids about Black Wall Street in Tulsa, which I never learned about, never, ever, ever, until the last couple of years. If we can learn about all of this stuff, we'll be better people. We'll be better people. Don't be afraid of Black Lives Matter. Don't be afraid of, of understanding critical race theory a little bit more than you do. Please understand it. And then reparations. I'm sorry. We, we, don't, we don't write out checks. We can write historic wrongs like Bruce Beach, but we do not write out checks like that. I'm open to listening to African-Americans and, and, and white politicians talk about reparations because maybe there is a good idea out there. I'm not saying there isn't, but California doesn't have it. Sorry, Gavin. California, the state of California, I don't think they have the right idea by giving people millions and millions of dollars. Where? Why don't we just give everybody millions of dollars and see how the country works out then? So, all right, Nick the American, we're pro-Black Lives Matter. We're pro-critical race theory, and we're anti-reparations as, they, as we see them today. So, all right, just learn a little bit more. Learn a little bit more. Learn about Black Reconstruction. My goodness. 1865 to 1965. Literally, the country was closed for African Americans. Their lives did not matter. Well, Nick the American, Black Lives Matter, 100%. All right. I got to talk about a dude now. I get excited. Uh, uh, there's a there's a Washington State icon I've been I've been following I've been listening to I've actually met him a couple of times for the last 25 years in the state of Washington he's a former football player he's an analyst now um, for local Seattle sports it's too bad he's not a national analyst because he's that good he's that classy he's actually a conservative by the way. Let's see. How do I describe him? If you are an Oklahoma Sooner fan and you go back away, say 1984, the Sooner Schooner game against the University of Washington, this man has touched you, right? If you're a University of Washington Husky fan, this man has touched you. If you went to Roosevelt High School in Washington, you know this guy. If you're a member or a fan of the world champion Dallas Cowboys in the 90s, this man was Troy Aikman's backup quarterback. He backed up John Elway in the Denver Broncos. Won a huge game in Arrowhead Stadium, where John Elway really never won. He played for the New England Patriots. He volunteers his time. He was in the Greater Eastside Junior Football Association for many years with his two boys coaching football. He was the passing coordinator at a high school called Mount Sai in North Bend, Washington. He's got a couple boys that play college football. Who the hell am I talking about? I'm talking about Washington State Treasurer, 
Hugh Millen. I love Hugh. Who doesn't love Hugh Millen? And I would encourage any one of my listeners, go on YouTube, go on, you know, uh, Google his name. He's got podcasts, I believe. You can go listen to him. The guy oozes class. He will talk X's and O's with the best of them. And for the novice NFL fan, he'll talk in a way that, you know, you you can understand a little bit. Sometimes not. You can get in the weeds. But this guy for the last 25 years in the state of Washington has been an absolute treasure and, and one of my personal idols. I mean, I want to be like Hugh. I think if every American was like Hugh Millen, and I'm not kidding, we'd have a great country. That's how that, that that's what a what what kind of guy he is. Now, this was like 2011. I'm boarding a flight, an American Airlines flight to Dallas, Texas. I'm sitting in the exit row. I'm huddling early morning flight, huddling back to row 16 or 17, whatever the exit row is. I've got a I've got an uh I believe it was a window seat. Window seat. Who do you think is sitting in the middle seat? Hugh Millen. Husky legend, Hugh Millen. Mount Si legend, Hugh Millen. And me and Hugh sat there and we talked sports. We talked a little religion. We talked some politics. We talked for the three hour and 10 minute flight to Dallas. Now, what was kind of cool about that flight, Seahawks fans, as we were boarding that flight, the Seahawks hired somebody. They hired Pete Carroll, the coach at the University of Southern California to be their head coach. And one of the topics me and Hugh talked about was Pete Carroll. And I remember Hugh not, not buying into Pete totally. He was very wishy-washy on it. Didn't Wasn't sure if, if Pete's raw, raw college style was going to translate to the pro game. Me and Hugh, I, I, remember t- I, I remember telling Hugh, I said, listen, Hugh, if at any point you get annoyed or you want to take a nap, just tell me to shut the fuck up. Because if you don't, I've got Hugh Millen sitting next to me for three hours. I'm going to take advantage of it. And he said, no, you're fine. You're fine. We even got it. We, we even made a bet on the plane. And th- I've got a BlackBerry. We've got like Blackberries. There are no iPhones, right? I've got this, what's supposed to be this new fancy BlackBerry. And we got into what we were talking about. I don't know how the San Francisco 49ers came up. We were talking about the 88 or the 89 season. And we both... We made a bet with each other on the plane. We've got no Wi-Fi, obviously. That what the record I believe of the 1989 San Francisco 49ers was. I got the 89 Niners mixed up with the 88 Niners' record. He thought they were 15 and one. They were really 14 and two. I thought they were 10 and six. I got my years mixed up. We got off that plane. We've got our Blackberries. Me and Hugh Millen. Me and Hugh got our Blackberries out. And I was relieved. We were both wrong, but he was much more right than I was. I was wrong, but I didn't have to pay up. A couple years later, I was at a Husky, uh, the University of Washington Husky spring game. And I've got a buddy whose dad was an All-American at UW. And he went and played in the NFL for a few years. And so we were up in the suite with the players. And in the suite was Hugh Millen and his two boys, Kale and Clay Millen. Clay, by the way, plays for Colorado State. And, man, I have pumped him up to everybody I know. I'm really, really rooting for Clay Millen. But so he so he was he was at this uh, spring game, and I went up, 
And I didn't know if he was going to remember me or not. Right. I'm a moron. And I went up to him and I, I, I introduced myself and he shook my hand and he said, Nick, was that not the best three hours you've ever spent in the air? And he literally, he made my day. He made my week. He made my month. Look at it's 10, it's 11 years later. And I'm still talking about it. So I just thought I would share with you what I believe to be a Washington state treasure. No doubt about it. No finer man that I've listened to. Now I don't know him personally, right? But I'll, I'll bet your ass. He's as good a dad as there ever was. I bet your ass. He's a damn great husband. I bet your ass. He's a really good coworker. I'll bet you anything. He's a damn good friend. Hugh Millen, stand up. I love you. You're an icon. Yep. Keep doing what you're doing. And if you're not familiar with Hugh Millen, look him up. Listen to him. He is superb. All right. Last. About a week ago, I got a phone call from a friend of mine letting me know that one of my college roommates, Ryan, his his daughter, Lily, his 15-year-old daughter, Lily, from Puyallup, Washington, had passed away in her sleep. Okay. I could have talked about it last week. Um, I didn't know if I was going to be able to get it through, get through it. And, and I don't know. We'll see how I do here. But I got to attend the funeral of a 15-year-old high school girl from Puyallup, Washington. Her name was Lily. And it was arguably the worst funeral I've ever been to. It, it's either one or two. Or it's either number two or it's number one. It's, it's right there. I never met Lily. I never got to meet her. And I'm not the closest any longer with my old college roommate, Ryan. But I love Ryan. Ryan could call me tomorrow and ask me for something, and I would move a mountain for him. He's kind of a, a recluse, right? He doesn't, doesn't stay in contact with, with anybody. But I have always loved my roommate for two years, Ryan. I love him. I love you, dude. So to hear that his 15-year-old girl died in her sleep broke my heart. It absolutely just tore me up. I knew his mother. I, I knew Lily's mother, too. She went to, she went to college with us at Central Washington. And Ryan was just the most amazing dude. And his mom was so giving, so caring, so fun. Never had a bad word. Jessica, you never had a bad word to say about anybody. As gorgeous as you were, right? Your nose was never in the air. And so I never met Lily. But I met her parents. And I knew what kind of cloth she was cut from. And listening to all the stories about her. I really wish just one time I could have I, I could have gotten to meet her, could have gotten to see the daughter of Jessica and Ryan. It would have been really, really good. So during this funeral. Uh, let me let me take a step back, because I know when you hear a 15 year old girl, 
you think and, you know, they don't die in their sleep. The the toxicology reports came back. No drugs in her system. This looks like a parent's worst nightmare. Maybe drugs would be your worst nightmare, but at least you would know. They, Ryan and Jessica right now to this moment do not know what happened to their daughter. There must be some pre-existing condition and they are not going to find out for several, several months what happened to their daughter. I told I told Ryan at the wedding, I said, you know, there's no such thing as closure. I think that's that's such bullshit, right? This will never be closed. You will there you will never get closure from losing your 15-year-old baby, right? Never. But you have to know what happened to her. You have to know. <clears throat> and so at the funeral, you hear these cliches, oh love, you know, hug the ones you love. You never know when the last time, you know, you're going to see him is. And at this funeral in particular, you took you took those words to heart, right? And, and I got home and my wife wanted to know how the funeral was. And, and, and I, whenever I talked about it for the first few hours, I couldn't keep myself together. I would cry. <clears throat> and so she was asking me how it was and, you know, say, how the hell do you think it was? It was freaking awful. But when I got home, I have three boys and a nine-year-old girl. I went up to each one of my boys and I encourage you to do this. I encourage you to do this with your best friend, with your wife, with your parents, anybody who you hold truly dear. I went up to my sons and for the first time in my life, I hugged them like I lost them, like I'd lost them. I could feel their bones. I mean, they were taken aback. Like, what the hell are you doing, dad? I did it to Carter, my oldest. Then I, I grabbed Spencer, who's nearly six foot three, and I squeezed him as hard as I could. And then I went up to Brady, and I did the same damn thing. I hugged them like I lost them. And then, then, I, I go up to my nine-year-old Henri girl, who I'm always playing jokes on, right? And I try to give her a hug, and she kicks me and punches me and gives me the middle finger, Okay. Way to go, Campbell. Your dad was trying to trying to love you. But for your loved ones, do me a favor. Next time you see them, go up and give them a hug like you've lost them. Ryan and Jessica don't get to do that. It's it, it, it was almost an out-of-body experience, how good it felt, okay? And I didn't lose my kids, right? But I acted like I did when I hugged them. So I, I wanted to share that with you. Lily from Puyallup. Rest in peace, sweetheart. Rest in peace, and on that note, I'll talk to you guys later.